I think that your odds of success building a startup are much higher if at least one person in the founding team has some orientation to do sales, right? If everybody's technical and everybody's introverted, who's going to talk with customers? Who's going to succeed in doing that? Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth, and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. All right, welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show. I am your host, Alex Thuma, uh, CEO, founder of SaaStock. Delighted today to be joined by Itamar Novik, who is the general partner and co-founder of Recursive Ventures. Uh, welcome, Itamar, to the show. Thanks for having me, Alex. Very excited to be here. And uh, for all the audience, uh, thanks for joining. Good to have you on the podcast. Where, whereabouts are you at the moment, Itamar? I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, in my home, which is uh, close to Berkeley, California. It's been almost 12 months since I've been to the... Uh, uh, the Bay Area. What are, what are things like at the moment? You you know you hear things in the news and like you know SF is uh, in England. They 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 call it uh, or they're saying in the in the press anyway a bit of like a doom loop in terms of um, you, you know wh- what's happening uh, like with uh, I, I guess uh, the office spaces and you, you know some some issues there and you know companies moving out. But with with you living there, you know at the moment, what what is it really like? Uh, so right now, let's say two different things. So the first thing is you know. Uh, the media is directionally correct, but like the media loves doing, they amplify things quite a bit. So indeed, the homeless situation is is pretty dire, and uh, it's not being taken care of well enough. And downtown San Francisco looks a little bit like um, I shouldn't say that word here live. That's okay. Uh, so that's pretty bad. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, what's interesting and uh, sort of very encouraging for me to see is the uh, quick revival of the tech scene here post COVID. So San Francisco is now uh, sort of the, the epic hub for anything AI, right? We've got we've got OpenAI here, Databricks, Snowflake is is just a few steps away, and so on and so forth. So you're seeing all this kind of AI revolution, everybody flocking to San Francisco, and I think you know San Francisco has always been a, a boom and bust city. Hopefully, we're we're headed to a boom. Uh, driven by AI. Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. Uh, so a little bit about SF there, but what about yourself? Uh, and for those that don't know and who haven't met you before, know nothing about you, who is Itamar Novik? Yeah, well, thanks for asking. So um, I am a, a, a serial entrepreneur and an investor, uh, originally from Israel, now living in the San Francisco Bay Area for the last uh, <clears throat> almost uh, 14 years. I'm a, I'm a, a techie and, and a geek, geek, I would say. Uh, so I love anything tech. I love playing around with technology, uh, consumer products, enterprise products, and so on and so forth. Um, I've 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 been on all sides of the table of the startup table, right? So I've spent my entire career in startups. As um, as an operator, my last role was uh, helping take uh, Life three hundred and sixty from a, a pre seed stage company all the way to an IPO, um, which we we went public in twenty nineteen. Um, before that, I had uh, several roles across engineering, product, and business development in other startups. As an investor, I was first trained on Sand Hill Road as an institutional VC at a firm called Morgan Tower Ventures. Later, um, I started an incubator called Upwest Labs, which helps connect the dot between Tel Aviv and Palo Alto, sort of helping Israeli entrepreneurs succeed here in the U.S. And for the last 11 years or so, I've been running recursive ventures, 
which is a, a, a solo capitalist VC firm uh, investing in pre-seed stage startups focused on data and AI. Um, and I've been selected by Business Insider and, and Tribe Capital as a top 100 global seed investor for the last three years. You mentioned about working your whole life in startups, no better place. Uh, can highly recommend it to uh, to people. Actually, uh, somebody I interviewed on a podcast earlier today, um, uh, Lloyd Lobo said the same. He'd, he'd worked his whole life from graduating, you, you know, uh, straight in startups. And uh, uh, again, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just for, for me, you know, certainly... Feels like home as it did. Uh, I'm sure it does for you, for you and uh, uh, for Lloyd uh, earlier as well. And so, uh, recursive ventures, solo solo GP. Why the why the solo routes? And uh, have you ever thought about you know growing uh, this into you know being a, 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 a I guess kind of multi partner fund? Yeah. So the reason why I'm going solo is because I think that's because that way I'm the best partner and I can provide the best service for pre seed and seed stage entrepreneurs that want to work with me because. Having no office, no staff, no overhead, no you know VC firm politics actually frees up my time to do the two things that I'm focused on, which is finding and investing in the best entrepreneurs and then supporting them, helping them build momentum from zero to one, right? At the end of the day, uh, I have a lot of respect for junior investment professionals, uh, but they can't necessarily help a company as much as I can potentially do having helped over 100 companies scale to the Series A and beyond, right? Um Having five or six partners, for example, like you've got in bigger venture farms around the table trying to make a decision on whether we're going to bridge a company or not. And wait, it's actually an enterprise company and you've got a consumer general partner voting on whether we should continue to support this company or not when they're not really subject matter experts is not being very helpful either. I think the type of partnership that uh, pre-seed and seed co-founders, founders really need is uh, a partnership with somebody who's a single decision maker, who's walked in their shoes, and can move and adopt as quickly as their business moves and adopts. And that's really what I bring to the table. Is there any, and this is my curiosity here, uh, asking these questions, but um, I, I think, did I see you, you've invested in perhaps over 100 business, uh, 100 companies, something like that? Uh, I'm assuming as a solo GP, you can't take board seats and, uh, on all of these. So how do you select where, which board seats you take and which you don't? Because your, your time is only finite, right? Excellent question. So I actually uh, intentionally do not take board seats. Okay. Why? Because again, that would take more of my time um, and my ability to focus on helping my companies where I can help them most. I'm also also extremely entrepreneur friendly. And uh, when you when you take on board seats, then you have more fiduciary duties, and you could potentially uh, you have a higher chance of potentially coming into conflict with entrepreneurs, and that's not really what I'm looking for. Okay, makes sense. And and being, uh, I, I guess, working in startups and I think being a founder yourself before you uh, entered the world of VC, why did you decide to make that switch from being a founder, you know, being an operator, and then uh, you know now working, you know, in, in institutional VC fund, and, and now obviously being a solo capitalist? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So um, I basically figured out that I'm better at supporting founders than being a founder myself. (laughs) I'm not a bad operator. I've done a lot of uh, things that have moved the needle quite a bit, and I'm very proud of what I've been able to do as an operator. But what I figured out is that supporting uh, founders early in their journey is actually what I do best. And, And I love doing it. 
I love being there and helping them uh, early on create that early momentum. And I also love being the person that kind of helps solve some of those wicked hard problems that shows show up when you're when you're starting a new company. So that's really why I actively chose to take on this role versus you know do another uh, senior executive role in a startup. Given uh, I, th- I mentioned the numbers over 100, I think it's you've invested in over 115 SaaS companies over the last decade. So uh, there's quite a lot. Again, at that early stage, pre-seed seed uh, stage, uh, and, and so I know what we wanted to talk about is how do you raise your your first round, uh, you know, as a as a SaaS business. So I, I guess kind of like with that, um, you you know, where to start, right? You you know, let, let let's go through your your uh, kind of lessons and tips in you know how does a how does a SaaS founder, a SaaS company raise its first round? Yeah, oh, that's that's a great question, and a lot of people ask me that and. Um, kind of the, the, the service that I provide most to entrepreneurs is really uh, you know, sort of mental support and help in the fundraising process for pre-seed, seed, and Series A, and even subsequent rounds beyond, behind that. And the reason I can, I can do that is because I've raised over $400 million myself as a founder, and I've helped dozens of companies scale to Series A and beyond. And I actually have this um, kind of uh, uh, talk that I do around demystifying pre-seed investment rounds, which is really the first sort of institutional-grade investment round that, that companies receive these days. And look, there's a lot of facets to it. Um, it's, not, it's, not really, it's not really a science. It's more of an art. But I'm definitely happy to share you know, uh, some trick, tick, tip, uh, tricks and, and tips uh, from what I've seen uh, in the market that, that hopefully would help the founders listening to this podcast. Sounds good. So, look, the, the, the landscape for fundraising has changed a lot over the last 10 years, right? So you now have more options than ever as an entrepreneur. You've got micro VCs and incubators and, and angel funds and, and pre-seed funds and seed funds. And uh, it, it honestly gets a little bit confusing at this point. Like, who actually does what? And... Um, that's actually an important thing. So, so one of the things that uh, I really encourage founders to think long and hard about is kind of where are they on their journey? And then based on that, how do you match where you are to the right set of investors? So one thing that uh, maybe less experienced entrepreneurs do is they would you know, start the business, have some uh, you know, great ideas, maybe have some team members, and then they would jump all the way to pitching you know, a fund like Sequoia, for example. I'm just putting Sequoia out there as an example for an institutional bigger VC fund, right? And you know, often when you do that, not always, but often, that's not really the right fit. Like, it's too early. You know how many VCs have that answer? It's like, oh, no, it's too early for me. So you really have to focus your pitch and who you're pitching on the right stage that you're at. And what we're seeing now is that many companies, especially SaaS companies actually, end up continuously fundraising for you know two, sometimes even three years. So you kind of start off with what I call the friends and family and sort of angel round, right? That's where you have you know, maybe family members pitching in, you have some friendly angels who know you, who trust you, and it's really a stage where you don't have, you know, uh, you, it's hard to get a, a professional investor, let's say, to get conviction around the business. So you start with friends and family. After that, you move to the pre-seed stage. Then there is seed and series A. Now, of course, there is a spectrum all in between, and there's a lot of different, um, you know, opportunities to raise capital along the way, but I kind of want to potentially have those kind of boxes in place to help lead, lead the conversation on who you should actually be talking with in each one of those rounds. 
right? So, um, so very simple. Let's start with the beginning, friends and family. That's where you really are focused on raising money from angels, raising money from people you know. Maybe it's your old boss. Maybe it's somebody that uh, you've been engaged with around you know this venture that you're starting, um, and they like what you're doing, and they like you, and they really want to put you know a 25, a 50, or 100k check right into your company. And when you're doing that, typically what you have is you've identified a clear market opportunity. Uh, you have a founding team in place. So maybe it's you and another co-founder. Maybe there's a third co-founder and so on and so forth. You validate the opportunity with a few potential customers. And you're at the point where you're starting to incur expenses. Maybe you need a designer. Maybe you need one engineer that's going to work part-time as a contractor. So you actually need the money. But you're not at the stage yet where you have that level of conviction that you can go to sort of professional investors. That I bucket all that sort of in the friends and family um, and angel sort of round. Then, um, if things move forward and, you know, it's looking good, you move to what's known today as the pre-seed stage. By the way, 10 years ago, it used to be called seed, but, you know, the market has evolved a lot, and there's all those micro phases in the middle now, right? So, what are the signs that you're actually in the pre-seed stage? Um, you, you're, you're, you're probably, you know, your company, uh, we're talking about SaaS companies, is probably kind of pre-product or alpha, but you've got something to show investors, right? There's some sort of a demo where you can show, okay, here's how the, 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 the solution works. Um, here's the, the, the architecture. Here's what's unique. Maybe you can play around with it. It actually, there's something that you're able to show. So you've already built something. That's one. Two is you've already pinned down a bunch of customers and engaged them. So this is going beyond validation of like picking up the phone and calling a bunch of people and saying, hey, if we build it, will they come? This is one step further. This is, you've had multiple conversations with potential customers and they said, yes, I want to be your design partner. Like I want to, I want to support you in building this thing because if you end up building it, I will buy it. I will use it. Right? So something to show design partners, right? Um, and also, you're getting to a point where you need to make hires, right? Because once you have customers and they're like, yeah, I want this piece of software, you actually have to build it. So you have a plan. You have an operating plan that says, okay, I need to hire two engineers and we need to build this and we need to build that. And expenses are starting to pile up. That's when you're ready for the pre-seed stage. And the pre-seed stage is a stage where you're going to find people like me who are professional investors. This is what we do for a living, Right. And we, although we don't diligence investment opportunities as much as a Series A firm would, you're still going to come across some very significant diligence, right? And you want to be in, in a space that's big enough, you know, the TAM, total addressable market is big enough, and have all those kind of signs that you're ready to receive institutional grade capital, basically, to your company, right? Um, I'm going to skip the, the, the seed stage, kind of signs that you're in the seed stage. Uh, because you know we're we're kind of like focused more on the first round, so I'd say your first round is probably that angel round, and then your second round is what's called the pre-seed round these days. On the DD side, so you mentioned there that uh, an investor like yourself, um, or and sorry, at that stage wouldn't do. Uh, the, do, you do DD, it would be detailed, but not as detailed as, let's say, you know, when it, when it comes to Series A, right? Um, what can a founder expect that somebody like yourself, if you were in, investing in pre-seed, uh, would, you know, what do you need uh, from a DD perspective and like building out the data room? What sort of information do you look at? How long does the process take? 
Yeah, the process can take anywhere between a week and, and three months. I think it really depends on uh, you know which company is different. But what you're probably going to see me and folks like me do a lot in DD is really validate the market. So we would call up experts. We would call up advisors in our network, people that know that space. We would call up potential, potential customers and say, hey, you know, I ran across this interesting company, this interesting idea. What do you think? Like, would this would this fly? Would you buy this if it actually works? Sometimes we ask the founders to actually do demo to prospective customers, which is a win-win because we, you know, uh, we kind of introduce them to prospective customers and they get a chance to pitch them, and that's really what they want to do. You know, they want to push their business forward. Uh, so you'd see a lot of that, a lot of market validation. Then, um, so that's one. The second piece you'd see is um, probably quite a bit of drilling around why is this the right team. Why, you know, how are they positioned to win? Do we have all the right components or the right DNA in the company to be to be able to push forward and, and, and make this big, right? That's the second space, you know, people, team that you'd see me kind of um, focus on a lot. And the, and the third piece, which I think founders often neglect, but is really, really important because it's at the core, at the foundation of the alignment between founders and entrepreneurs when you're building a scalable startup is really the market and the market size, right? I've seen a lot of founders sort of make the mistake of saying, oh, I'm really in love with this problem or maybe I'm in love with a solution, but not actually doing the math to understand whether it can become a multi-billion dollar business. Now, the issue with that is it doesn't mean that you shouldn't build a company. You should, if you like the problem and you want to, if you, if, if you care about the problem and you like the solution that you want to build, Maybe you should go ahead and build it. But if you're taking money from VCs, you got to make sure that's going to be a scalable startup that's going to be worth billions of dollars if it all works out. Because if you don't, you're going to be misaligned with your VCs. This is what VCs are looking for. So don't raise money from VCs unless you want to build a VC-backable company. And to build a VC-backable company, you probably have to show a path to you know 500, maybe a billion dollars in revenue just for your company, you know, seven to ten years from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you, you mentioned um, obviously we, we took uh, the the market opportunity, obviously the the, the product, uh, you know, the team um, on the team, and and specifically like, uh, well, I guess it, we're looking at the founding team uh, uh, here uh, at this stage. How much time would you spend in a pre-seed deal, and would a founder expect that a, a VC spends sort of with the founding team to kind of get to know them and like what sort of questions do you ask or like how do you get to know the founder because a lot of it will be the conviction in like the founder or founders right you're 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 making a bet because like at the moment they don't really have any any traction they don't really have many metrics so it's like a a lot of it's like the the three things that you mentioned but within the founder itself so when you're on a call or usually hopefully meeting in person with the founder how do you get get that sense that okay this is a winner you know so every, every investor has a different style. Uh, my style is really asking very hard questions and seeing how the founders deal with it. Okay. Uh, can you give me an example of a hard question, um, perhaps? Yeah. I mean, often we're looking in situations where there's a lot of competition. So I would ask the team what the differentiation is. And if the answer is kind of shallow, then I would keep digging. And I'd say, no, but your competitor also has the same feature, so what makes you better? Or like, show me the slide that you would show a customer 
that shows your differentiation and why they should buy you and not this other company, right? Um, that's one example. Another example is, I should have mentioned, my focus is on data and AI. I invest in data and AI companies, have been doing that for many, many years, even before, you know, ChatGPT came out. Very excited about everything that's happening today uh, in the market. Um, I look for companies that have proprietary data or access to proprietary data. And because of that, they have defendability. They've got a moat, right? So often founders tell me, oh, we're going to leverage our customers' data, and that's going to be very unique. And I'm like, no, like any company that would try to deliver the same solution that you're delivering would also get access to their customers' data, and that's not a true differentiator, right? What else do you have that's actually going to make you a defendable business? What I've learned over the years is if you want to build you know, a company to the point that it can go public, it's got to have a moat. If you don't have competition today, you'll have competition five years from now. If not five years from now, when you go IPO, your bankers are going to look at you and say, oh, but how do you make this business sustainable in the long term? And your valuation, your value, how much you can you know, grow the business is really going to be dependent on that long term. So I spend a lot of time um, giving founders a hard time around what's your differentiation, what's your moat. Makes sense. It makes sense. And for the founders to like, I, I guess there's so many different VCs out there. As you said, you spe- you specialize in sort of data and AI. So if this is not a data and AI SaaS, then you know they're wasting their time probably like reaching out uh, to you. Uh, I, I would imagine, although maybe you could politely say point them in the in, in the right direction. Um, but what, what's your kind of advice for? founders to find the right VCs and, uh, you know, either sort of researching or, you know, where to find them. And then once they want one, when they find them, then like, you know, how to, to get in front of them. And, you know, is it, is it, is it a cold email or, you know, are there some other things to, to do there? Yeah. Let me actually take a step back and move into my first, uh, tips for the day. So fundraising is a sales effort. You need to think about it as a sales effort. If you don't know how to do sales and you're the CEO of a company trying to raise money, go and consult with somebody who has done sales. When you do sales, you need to have a game plan, you need to have high-quality collateral, and you need to build a CRM, right? And a process around the fundraising itself, right? So collateral is pretty obvious. you got to have the deck. you got to be able to, you know, potentially if I wake you up in the middle of the night, you need to be able to walk that deck back and forth with me, right, quickly. So you got to be really, you know, got to train yourself on, on being able to pitch this really, really well. Uh, more to your question, how do you build the CRM? How do you build the, the lead sheet for the VCs that, that you want to pitch? So I'd say focus on stage. Are they actually investing in pre-seed or seed, whatever stage you're at? That's very, very important. The way to do that is look at Crunchbase and look for the individual GP or the firm and see what kind of deals have they done recently right? Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is 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 sort of vector or uh, vertical or focus, right? Have, and I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of founders, by the way, they get confused between firms and general partners. Firms are great, and often you get a reputation for the firm. Again, I'm naming Sequoia as the obvious, you know, VC that everybody knows. But when it comes to fundraising, it's not about the firm. It's actually about the individual general partner. You got to get to the right person within the firm, and the right person within the firm is the is the person that is actively looking at the space you're building a company at. Have they done investments in other companies in the space? That would be the first question that I would ask. Maybe they wrote a blog post about you know this space. Maybe they've shown some keen interest in an event where they were speaking at, and maybe they 
maybe on the website it actually says that they invest in enterprise SaaS and developer tools, right? And you're building a developer tool company. So make sure that you're talking to a person who is focused on the right stage that you're at and the right vertical, right? The right you know, the, the space that you're playing at. Then when it comes to introductions, that's a very good question. And also pertains to how I operate and a lot of other investors operate. Cold calling is really not the way to go. The way to go is to find people that have relationships with that VC. And actually, if you strive to be an entrepreneur yourself, I would encourage you to consistently build relationships with people in the startup and VC ecosystem because they can they are the people that will help introduce you to VCs down the line. The best way to get to a, B, to a VC is getting a warm introduction from somebody who knows you well and knows them well and can really vouch for the for the introduction, right? They would say they know both sides, they know it can be a good fit and can really make that warm introduction. For me personally, um, I get way too many too many you know leads, too many investment opportunities, and I have no ability to process all of them. So I really look at what I call pre-qualified deals on my end, which means that it's um, it's an introduction coming from somebody I know and respect, often somebody that I work with. Maybe it's an entrepreneur I backed before. Maybe it's an executive I've worked before, I've worked with before, right? And I look for that introduction from some from somebody who vouch for the founder and say, "Oh wow, this this person is great. Like she's able to, you know, I've seen her. You know, we've worked together. She's just amazing. You should talk to her, right?" So that's when you know I would take it very seriously, jump in a call, start doing diligence, and really start doing the work. But it's gonna be pre-qualified by, oh, it's the right stage very early, and somebody I know is sort of vouching for the founder saying, you should take a look at this. In some of the things that you mentioned there, like in terms of it being uh, fundraising a sales effort, totally agree. And then um, like in, in order to connect with the VCs, you know, to starting to build, uh, and I guess kind of like network within the startup world to to uh, build those uh, connections that may help you get to the right person. If you if you are and 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 many SaaS founders are, I don't, uh, but introverted, they're not salespeople. They're let's say they're the engineer, founder engineer, <clears throat> um, and that doesn't like networking. How do they overcome maybe some of the, the these barriers, right? Because obviously a lot of uh, uh, great SaaS companies, you, you know, have come from let's say you, you know kind of technical founders. Um, that may or may not be great at sales. I don't know. Do they just need to kind of overcome that barrier and you know just be- become really good at sales? Uh, like, what, what's your thoughts, sir? Yeah. I'd say the technical founders that actually succeed as founder CEO in startups, typically they're great at being technical and they're great at doing sales. They're just great at both. And those are you know unicorn founders. We all love them uh, as investors. But I think when you're starting a company and you're doing it with the partners. You really have to have a, a keen understanding, a good understanding of who's good at what. And especially if you're building a, a SaaS company, which has either some sort of a PLG motion or an inside sales motion or you know a partnership distribution kind of motion, there's typically a sales component somewhere in there. Sales, marketing, how do you best position this? How do you best put this in front of people? And those people could be customers and they could be investors. It's, again, they're both really sales effort efforts, like we mentioned. So I think that your odds of success building a startup are much higher if at least one person in the founding team has 
some orientation to do sales, right? If everybody's technical and everybody's introverted, who's going to talk with customers, right? Who's going to succeed in doing that? So, um, but I think if you get a highly technical person who's really great on the technical side and they're great at talking to customers, that's when you have even higher odds of success. And those are, you know, some of the founder profiles that I look for. Any final tips for raising the first round? So a couple of things. So be prepared for a six plus month long slog. It's going to take time, especially if you haven't done this before. You're going to have to build your network and build credibility. And you're probably going to get, I don't know, 50 no's before you're going to get your first yes. So don't despair. Hang in there. If you feel confident that you've done your diligence and you know that the market is big enough and you've got the right differentiated solution and you can create a mode and you can do all those things well, don't despair because you're getting no's. You're going to get 50, maybe 100 no's before you get your first yes. Once you get your first yes, things are going to get better, but you're still going to get a lot of no's. So you just have to really be prepared for that long haul. And as I mentioned in the beginning, Many companies go into a two, sometimes even three years continuous fundraising effort where you get some money and then you get some more money and then you validate some stuff, you hit some milestones and then you get a little bit more money and then one VC comes in, gives you a million bucks. That's still very early. You still don't have a lot of capital to work with and there's a lot of proof points that you need to create along, um, along the way. Um, the, the other thing I would say is, um, you know, you have to really be thoughtful about how much you're raising and who you're raising it from. Once you try to raise more than, let's say, in the U.S., a million or a million and a half, you really have to find a lead investor. And lead investors are typical, typically you know, full-time investors like me, and institutional in, in that sense. So in order to be able to do that, you really have to come prepared, right? You have to have all the collateral. You got to have a lot of the answers. It takes time to get there, but... Once you're ready to do a round that big, you should focus on getting the lead investor first so you don't get dragged and you don't get distracted by all those small investors um, along the journey. The last thing I would say is, is, you know, ignore fundraising news and ignore competitors. It's very, very easy to harp on, oh, wow, look at this other company. They just raised $30 million. And, but really what you're seeing is it's the blog sphere, it's, it's the media outlets, they're really biased for success. So they're not telling you about the 99 companies that haven't been able to raise a single dime and are still trying to figure out what to do next. They're telling you about the one success where somebody might have had a close relationship with this VC fund. Maybe they've got an ace up their sleeves. Maybe their uncle gave them $30 million. I don't even know what their story is, right? But and then as a founder, you're looking at it and saying, okay, what's wrong with me? Like this company raised $30 million and they have way less than we have. Well, that's the thing. You're getting distracted by that bias that, that media outlets have. Don't. Just focus on yourself. Focus on your company. Focus on what you do best and you'll eventually be able to, to work through fundraising. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, let's move into the, uh, the the quick fire round uh, then, Itamar. Um, what one thing has moved the needle the most for you in your career? Well, Honestly, probably moving to Silicon Valley. Uh, what's the best advice you ever received? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, and it, it, very early in my career, and I still re- appreciate that so much even today. If you want to have a successful uh, career in tech, you should stay as close to technology as you can for as long as you can. So specifically for me, I was an engineer early on. 
my mentor said, you should stay an engineer for as long as you can. Eventually, you'll transition to, you know, potentially business roles or other roles, but stay, you know, stay, you know, in technology, play around with technology for as long as you can and always stay on top of the latest trend. What are some of the biggest mistakes you, you see or a biggest mistake you see that founders raising um, uh, and how do you avoid them? Um, so I'd say three big mistakes. Not being prepared, talking to the wrong investors uh, for the stage that you're at, and maybe most important, getting real conviction yourself. You should diligence your own pitch before you let somebody else diligence it. Again, is the market big enough? Does your go-to-market make sense? Do you have the right funding team in place? Don't wait for VCs to ask you those questions. Ask those questions yourself before before you even go out. Actually, here's a great exercise for some founders out there. Once you put the VC hat on and think of through, if you were a VC, what 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 kind of hard questions would you ask when you're looking at this this you know potential investment opportunity? And then answer those questions yourself so you're well prepared to be able to have that conversation with VCs. What's your favorite book on entrepreneurship and or VC? Well, you know, I I uh, I really like uh, Ben Horowitz, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. I think in many ways the book embodies and reflects Silicon Valley mentality. I think it's great for CEOs starting a company and sort of how to build the right culture, how to you know deal with people, hiring, firing, all those things that are really key at being a successful CEO. So I always recommend that book to my founders. It's a classic, one of my faves, and uh, yeah, definitely uh, comes up a lot. Uh, what about your daily routine? What does it? What does the daily routine look like for not just for an investor, but for yourself? Yeah. So um, interesting question. So uh, I try to sleep at least eight hours a night, which is now is easy, but I think it's totally worth it. So um, I get I get a slow start at around uh, nine a.m. is typically when I you know take my first call. I work very hard, sometimes twelve hours a day. I work weekends as well. Being a VC is not is not a walk in the park. Um and I, I kinda I, I, I work hard and play hard. So I, I when I'm at home I work you know twelve hours a day around the clock. It's pretty intense. But I spend two if not three months a year traveling. Cause you know me and my family we love traveling. We go all over the place and and I'm always on. I can't always be fully disconnected. But I'm somewhere on this on this spectrum of like, you know, um, uh, intensity between 10% work and 100% work. So even when I'm traveling, I still work, you know, 10, 20% of the time because my companies need me and I want to be there for them. Gotcha. Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, uh, uh, thanks for sharing that. And uh, uh, I guess we come to the end of the podcast. So where can people find you online if they want to reach out, if they're in data or AI or they just want to comment on the podcast and connect with you? Um, how do they get in touch? The best way to get in touch with me is to ask for an intro, uh, warm introduction from somebody who knows me. You can figure out who knows me on LinkedIn. You can figure out which portfolio companies uh, I've invested in in the past. Probably the best way to get in touch with me is to find a CEO of a portfolio company of mine that you know and would you know vouch for you and say, this person is great, you should meet with him. I like this practicing what you preach there and, and not just saying uh, connect on LinkedIn. So uh, uh, that, that, that's good stuff. Well, Itamar Novik, um, uh, General Partner of Recursive Ventures. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the SaaS Revolution show today. Uh, it's been a pleasure for you to uh, be on the, on the show, share your learnings and how to raise a first round and uh, uh, really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks for having me, Alex. Really enjoyed the conversation and looking for, forward to doing uh, many more things. Uh, when is your next uh, U.S. event? 
Uh, next US event, uh, good question. Uh, SASWAT USA is in uh, May uh, 2024. Um, so in Austin, in Texas. I think exact dates, I can't remember off the top of my head, but we'll be back in May. It would be amazing to join you and others there. I can't wait for that. Yeah, definitely. It's going to be a, a great event. The first SASWAT USA in, in Austin this year was, uh, was amazing and uh, looking to make it even, even better next year. And what a great city Austin is uh, as well. So we're lucky to have chosen that uh, as our home, but definitely looking forward to, to seeing you there. That's wonderful. I can't wait. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SAS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SASDoc conferences around the world. Want exclusive SAS content and actionable insights to grow your SAS? Join our community of over 36,000 SaaS founders at sasdoc.com.